Hello, and thank you for joining us in Mapping the Zone, a podcast dedicated to informal discussion of the works and context of Thomas Pynchon. My name is Cody. I'm one of the co-hosts. I'm Will. I'm Luke. Man, Kate. We are following the reading schedule from the Pinchon subreddit, and today we are discussing chapters 36 through 40 of Mason and Dixon. Uh, Will has a summary for us. Yes, I do. So the long coach ride arrives at what Cherry Coke sees as a new-built Medina for travelers caught in the winter weather, an inn called the India Queen. There it happens that just shortly after this party's gotten settled in, who but Mason and Dixon themselves make an appearance. They're unhappy to find that the Reverend has been appointed the unrequested chaplain of the Lions Party, and are less than bothered to conceal their judgment. Sighing, they join the spirit of recreation, fueled by the daily opening of casks of the much-foretold peach brandy by the owners, Mr. and Mrs. Knockwood, masters of prestidigitation and showcraft. Louise and Mitzi Retzinger feud over the daughter's hair choices as other tensions rise around the practice of filling the tap and games rooms with tobacco smoke, and we meet the foremost of rabble-rousers present, a New York flown fop named Dimdown, who's ready to waggle his cutlass at who warms his blood, as well as a local jester of sorts called Halligast, of whom judgment is split between madness and prophecy. When the dynamic duo of astronomy informed the landlord of their sandwich of studying Venus America and Venus again, and he coins the metaphor, the house chef, Armand Allegra, erupts from the kitchen to damn the poorly esteemed format of foodstuff. A thoroughly British patriot, dim down leaps blade first to defend the ingenuity of Lord Sandwich, only to be silenced by a defamation of the man spiritedly presented by the reverend. The following day, Frau Redzinger is affronted by the scent of familiar recipes polluted by butter and garlic, and demands to meet the chef. So she does, and even as the Frenchman greets her, she finds her feelings shift from fury to amazement at such a beauteous craft as the croissant she's almost accidentally begun eating. He volunteers a demonstration of the process, but makes allusions to an ominous pursuit of his own person from which he is in hiding. He was the youngest son of a financially ruined family, but was able to afford apprenticeship at the greatest kitchen in Paris, where he studied for years before graduating to a reputation of great acclaim in the world of haute cuisine himself, specializing in duck and creative application of technique. One day, a private eye of sorts appears at its own kitchen, with some unwelcome news. A scientist, Vaucanson, an automaton creator, had surpassed his previously lauded success of a mechanical duck created to digest food just like its natural counterpart, with one that was even capable of flight and, and love. It soon escaped the control of its inventor, flying at speeds which rival human sight's perception, and has begun to educate itself. The name which presents itself most inflammatory beyond Vaucanson was none other than the canard cooking chronicler Armand. The investigator demands of him to act as bait for the recapture of the automatic duck, proffering a pistol as the alternate action available, when the mechanical waterfowl herself arrives with a screaming hum of wings inspiring a tactical retreat. She presents herself, explaining Bond villainously his doomed situation as the target of her ire. She offers her own alternative for him, though. He need only approach Vokenson, who has made clear his true feelings towards his artificial spawn by hiring an attorney, and insists that the other duck, who still lacks the romantic organs which animate the one in front of him, be made entirely virile. 
Armand himself, sorry, Armand finds himself flirting with the duck, and they attend an opera and dinner, a date of some kind, as they negotiate terms. He agrees to petition the scientist, but only succeeds in being run out of town. In some sort of romantic imprinting, the duck follows him, acting as an usually unseen guardian of sorts, and he learns of the far-flung land of Pennsylvania, setting his sights on that destination. Mr. Dimdown interrupts the tale with another challenge against the chef's honor, sword drawn, having seemed to have nursed a bottle the whole time the story has been told. Of course, the rest of the room's inhabitants can only groan. Can only groan. The landlord attempts to de-escalate things, but not before the sword is being thrust. Suddenly, mysteriously, it flies out of his grasp, landing in the fireplace. Armand announces the source of the act, finally explaining his eternal flight as from the bird. Frau Redzinger can only find endearment in these sorrowful stories, perhaps seeing flashes of her estranged husband's spiritual awakening in the culinary wit, and they bond over the kitchen. As a romance develops between the abandoned Frau and pursued cook, the duck takes it remarkably well, and Mitzi begins to dabble in her own love life, and finds time between jokes with boys to help her true more Armand in the back of the tavern. All this gastromania even has the reverend fascinated with foods, particularly the subject, particularly the subject of transubstantiation of sacrament. Eventually, in the further endeavor to cheer up her mother's bow, Mitzi retrieves Dim Down's hanger from the ashes, polishes it, and sharpens the edge, presenting it as an olive branch to the, the haunted youth. She utilizes her own recently honed feminine wiles to persuade him to drop the beef. Once achieved, she ushers him into the kitchen, and a ceasefire is drafted and signed with a discourse on lamination of steel and dough in kind. In epilogue, Wix reveals that Dimdown was only a macaroni in dress, actually running an illicit letterpress, fomenting revolutionary energy in the colonies, and disappoints all the young lovers in attendance by assuring that Mitzi never learned his true identity. The astronomers more and less respectively enjoy the fruits of these pastry-centric relationships, as Dixon is making time for a kitchen and is starving himself for grief. His counsels that to refrain from either some healthy food or at this stage, despite his late matrimony, can only be seen as unnatural. Beyond here, until the snow melt spring where they'll reconvene at the Harlan farm, they part ways. Mason to New York, Dixon to, well, here is murky, and Cherry Coke has no interest in fact now, to Annapolis, where he'll patiently and paranoiacly to be approached by the conspirators, only to be disappointed, or directly to Virginia, where he'll coin the term the pursuit of happiness from Jefferson and be challenged to a duel of peaceful gamemanship. Meanwhile, up north, Mason is observing the sixth anniversary of Rebecca's passing. He takes advice and falls into the throng grifter named Amelia. He strikes her as sweet and soon introduces him to her gang of robbers, insisting a change of plans no longer to avail themselves of his purse. At their hideout, he adopts a half-hearted guise as a French astronomer to avoid compulsive violence from a member of the party. He spends some time with them, time bought by fixing their, their telescope, in argument over degrees of slavery, insisting that wage work and slavery carried very little in common, while the nascent cousins of liberty declared otherwise. All in all, it seems that Mason's position is more shifted. En route home, his horse spooks, and he falls. The parlor party alleged the instigator to be the devil himself. But as he recovers, he studies First Corinthians and is visited in a dream by Rebecca, though he insists it were a wakeful, bit, wakeful visit.
All right. Thank you for that. Um, so I, I, as usual, want to get everyone's general thoughts on, on these chapters. I will say just to start, uh, these chapters and, and Will's summary of them, uh, made me incredibly hungry (laughs) the entire time I was reading. Um, there's a lot of really cool stuff that happens, a lot of really good discussion, um, and a lot of really funny scenes. Um, but there is so much tied to food in these five chapters. Um, I had totally forgotten how, how much that was in there. Was it the, the beaver bourguignon in particular that made you hungry? It was all of it. Like all the, all the pastry talk. Mm-hmm. Like we ended up going to a French restaurant yesterday <laughs> and I was like, I need to have a pastry. So it was just every, like every chapter just had more and more about, you know, various kinds of food and stuff. It just made me true. hungry. It's true. I, I like these chapters. It, it's, um, I think that, cause it's really only three scenes kind of like there's, there's an extended scene of all of them in this, you know, Snowden hotel restaurant kind of lodging area that takes up three of those chapters. And then we have a chapter where Dixon goes off and does his thing and, and Mason goes off and does his thing until the turn of the new year. So there's there's not content-wise uh, a, a lot necessarily, especially compared to like the last five chapters and the, the, the previous mm-hmm. five before that, where there was a, a ton to get into and a ton to talk about. And I, I feel like that's probably purposeful. Like Mason and Dixon has been a pretty heavy book until now, especially the last 10 chapters. And so Pinchon kind of comes along and says, okay, we're just going to have kind of a brief five-chapter aside about like, the relativity of consequences and decisions and also here is a reference to daffy duck that i'm going to stretch out <laughs> into a multi-chapter affair um and yep. the reaches you know very dizzying heights of absurdity but then of course he he doesn't pull completely back he still has some very profound things about this period of american history where the revolution is is like on the eve of happening sort of and kind of more thoughts about um, re- the religious ideas behind transubstantiation and and whether or not this this land is holy, so to speak. So uh, in a way, I feel like a good chunk of this section almost feels like a bit of a breather, but not without a forewarning at the end of it that yeah we're gonna still keep on trucking in the way that we have been for the past four hundred pages. Yeah, I really I really do love this section. It, it is not <laughs> not just because you have the extended um, riff on. Daffy Duck, but it, it's just it is so fun. Every every chapter here is, it is. yeah hilarious. Mm-hmm. Um, and I I I do I do really appreciate the the layers of um, romance, if you will, happening alongside all of this lamination of steel and dough. It's very it's neat. It's fun. It's not very deep, but it's pleasant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly kind of what I was thinking the whole time I was reading these chapters was that it's it's not it's not that there's not a lot going on because there is there is still a lot going on. But it's it's such a nice, you know, as Kate put it, it's a nice breather. It's we just came out of a really long couple of sections that dealt with a lot of heavy topics and themes. And so it's it's a good kind of moment of levity to get away from that and to, and to laugh like, and, and we'll come to this later. Um, it's not often that I laugh, like audibly laugh while I'm reading, but I absolutely did so many times. During yeah, these how five could chapters. You not? 
Yeah, I mean, we, we've gone from, like, long discourses on convoluted methods of surveying to just, I mean, a, a, a teenager insisting to her mother that she wants to wear her hair in the new style. <laughs> it's, it's a complete shift from this very down-to-business, very social commentary-focused section that we've just got come from to a, a lot of sure there's social commentary sure but it's mostly just uh these characters living their lives interacting with mm -hmm. each other mm -hmm. yeah i do think that these chapters are in some ways kind of transitional in a kind of in a nice way just in that they're a little bit lower stakes um i did kind of like the whole like the i didn't really think about this the first two times i i read this section this occurred to me uh, this week while I was doing the reading for this week um, that uh, the whole uh, <clears throat> travelers being stuck in a in an inn or some type of building due to a blizzard, um, which that trope comes up um, in Tarantino's The Hateful Eight in a really interesting way. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, there are definitely other examples. The only other one I can think of right now is is Yellow Jackets uh, with. I think the most recent season. There's some uh, heavy weather. Uh, and they kind of get cabin fever. Um, I do kind of wish that the section where they're all stuck inside in the inn due to the blizzard was kind of longer, um, just in terms of kind of exploring that that is a set piece. That is like a, a, a plot driver, I guess. But there's a lot of physical comedy in this section as well. Mostly related to the duck, um, mm -hmm. but I did kind of like that, that it's a little bit more slapstick. Um, and something that I think the Pinch and Wiki gets into, but definitely the listserv I keep referencing gets into, is that the woman that uh, Mason meets in Chapter 40 um, in, I think, Manhattan, or no, New Jersey, I think, uh, she does kind of have like that that valley girl uh type mm -hmm. of affect which is <laughs> i thought it took me yeah. a second because she she says you know like i i'm as and then she throws in a quote and then, and then he was as it, it did it, it, yeah it's it's like for the 17th century, century or 18th century. yeah it is it is really interesting that like it takes it took me just a second or two to kind of compute that in in modern parlance she would use the word like uh mm -hmm. but i found that pretty funny um, also, I mean, the section where uh, Mason like looks through their telescope, the kind of scoundrels telescope, and <laughs> realizes that they've been like spying on the British Harbor, or no, the Harbor of uh, New York, um, is kind of the first like really solid um, like um, telegraphing or like foreshadowing of the forthcoming revolution, which I also think was interesting. Because at first I was, the other times I've read this book, I was kind of confused as to why they were looking at the, the New York Harbor, and it, it wasn't it wasn't necessarily a sure thing in my brain that it was related to the American Revolution, but, um, this time through I definitely I like very certainly can link that to the forthcoming revolution, which I thought yeah. was interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I hadn't thought about the fact that if we look at this, Luke, you brought this to my mind. If if we kind of treat this book as a as like a TV series, this is the bottle episode. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, these five chapters, and and it works. Like it, it this, that's one of those things. Community did it great because they they talked about how horrible those <laughs> tend to be, but when you do it right, it can be really mm -hmm. good. And he did it right. 
So I, yeah. I, have, I have a question for, for you all before we get into the nitty of this story. Yeah. Um, so okay. uh, have all of you read V? Yes. Yes. Yeah, just once, it, and it was a long time ago. Okay, same here, actually. Um, but the, this time through, this, this party of, of people reminds me quite a bit of the whole sick crew. Like, a lot. And I can see that. Much, yeah, and there, there's not much hard linking them other than they're in the New York crowd and it's a bunch of young people living in an apartment. But there is also kind of the bottle episode thing in V. I'm now realizing where they're in Africa and they're surrounded by yeah by the natives and they have that um that party or whatever uh, in the like castle or fortress in Africa, which only is just now mm-hmm. occurring to me. Yeah, I wouldn't be surprised if this was if that was kind of intentionally just going back to, you know, back to his roots, so to speak. That that kind of style, that more uh, irreverence and and um, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Just kind of you know, generally anarchic style that he had in his early, earlier writing, especially yeah. in V. Yeah, but the I mean, there's party. there's also a <laughs> there's also a Captain V in these chapters as well yeah. too. Yep. So, um, you know, not to mention the, the inventor of the duck as well. His name starts with V. So he's, he's, Mm -hmm. I think he's making deliberate illusions there. Yeah, I think so too. And I, I have some other stuff that I wanted to bring up later regarding that as well. So that's, yeah, I hadn't thought about the V connection. And there's also the automaton, the robot in V, which could be linked to the duck as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, let's uh, let's dive in. Um, I so a lot of these chapters um, open beautifully. Uh, I love uh, specific like the the opening of chapter thirty six. Those first two paragraphs that um, that kind of describe the um, the setting uh, that we're coming into after the after the carriage ride. Um, just that, that opening couple of sentences, the driver having observed through the gusting low clouds, candlelit windows in the distance now notifies those of us below that we're approaching an inn. The ladies begin to stir and pat, lean together and discuss men relight their pipes and consult their watches and more discreetly their pocketbooks. And it it goes on. It's those two paragraphs. It's just, it's so, it's, it's great. It's just great writing. And I, I really like when a chapter opens like that, because I feel like it really engages me and, and keeps me you know, going through as we, as we come from one chapter yeah. to another. I, I really love the way that in, in that section, the, the description is clear. If you sit and you read word by word, it's clear. It's not ambiguous at all. But if you just read it quickly, it, it does, the, the actual description of the place becomes shattered and interspersed with the things it's being compared to. And I, th- I think it's a really beautiful demonstration of, kind of his skill as a descriptive writer yeah absolutely i also love that we end chapter 35 with like just first person with cherry coke describing himself and then as it switches over to chapter 36 and they arrive at this new spot he he changes to where he starts saying we where he's including you know not just the people he's telling the story to but but by extension us as the readers of the book in this in this journey Mm -hmm. towards the inn um it's a it's a really underutilized perspective to write from but it's super effective in what he's actually describing here which is i i thought an excellent choice on his part for how to actually compose these these introductions yeah i i and so that's another one of those kind of 
I felt like an uh, allusion to his earlier works because he does that a lot in Gravity's mm-hmm. Rainbow, where it shifts from that first-person perspective into second person so seamlessly that you, if you're really like engaged in the book, you almost don't realize it's happened. It's like until you're a couple of sentences or paragraphs in that you're like, holy shit, that's okay. Um, so and it's it's so hard. Yeah, like you said, it's hard to do that, especially that that second-person perspective um, can come off really schlocky and cheesy if it's not done right. But he does it so well. I really, I do, I do love the fact that um, and it's it's not just Pinchon; it's it's post-American authors and and others, but I do love the the more recent trend of, of actually being the the shift from first-person singular to first-person plural or to second-person singular. Really, does the author modulate how much they are speaking directly to the reader? much more clearly and it's really mm-hmm. nice to see it um used tactfully because it it can like you said be incredibly corny it can be painful sometimes mm-hmm. and when it's when it's well done yeah. it's just it just feels right yeah because if you it's one of those things i if you do it wrong it becomes it feels like a choose your own adventure story because <laughs> that's really the only time you you really see that perspective used um regularly um so yeah it gets it can get cringy um, but I want to start with, uh, I mean, it, it, you know, as we mentioned, there's, there's so much humor throughout these, uh, these five chapters. I did love the, um, there, and it's not the first time beavers come up, but just the, uh, the, the sort of butterfly effect that's replaced with a beaver that Mr. Knockwood talks yeah. about, uh, on page 364, <laughs> if a beaver um, throws a rock, just, just his, his obsession. <laughs> yeah. His obsession with you know keeping them out so that they won't you know damage his property and and therefore have these unforeseen impacts on the glo- on a global scale that who knows what's going to lead to. Yeah, absolutely. and I mean the other really cool thing about that is is like Pinchon just throws that in there and it 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 can be just left as oh this is a peculiarity with this particular you know this particular character like this is something he's concerned about but then in a way Pinchon gives us the perfect example of the effect that the guy is describing in the story of the duck where the the mm-hmm. the level yeah. to which this one decision to take on this case uh to to help deal with it has altered this man's life for the rest of his <laughs> life is just such a perfect encapsulation of that um but uh, you know it's 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 not something that he deliberately ties together you have to be paying attention and and doing a close reading to get it but it's it's stuff like that that makes these small inclusions so worthwhile to actually like grasp onto and pay attention to mm-hmm. uh, it's it's it i think it's really meaningful that it's being that this this rant is coming from the landlord of this this inn <laughs> which you know an inn is not a new establishment but the the previous section spent a lot of time talking about this new blend of revolutionary ideals and coffee and alcohol and tobacco and various other substances all mixing together and creating a new kind of culture and so it's interesting to have him freaked out and obsessed with the actions of beavers who yes their their behavior does impact the whole ecosystem but he is a beaver here he is Instead of building a dam, he's building an inn where all these people are congregating and are starting to get spirits up and get fighting and get talking. Which is made all the better by the fact that his, his name is not yeah. Wood, yeah. which I, I love. <laughs> exactly, yeah. It, it, it's it like, 
I, I believe it was you who said at the beginning, Will, that like the jokes in here are layered in the same way that a croissant dough or you know Damascus yep. steel is. Like it, it's so good when you really go through it, like name by name, sentence by sentence. Yeah, Mister Dim Down, the peevish Mister Dim Down. The yeah, the, so I and I'm glad you bring that up because I wanted to talk about that. I love that um, that little section with Mrs. Edgewise and her. The way he describes his her threatening dim down is so uh, just precise and, and evocative. I, I just wa- I want to read it because it's so I, I loved it so much. So it's peevish, Mister Dim Down, who's Mrs. Edgewise, reaching behind the youth's ear and underneath his wig to pr- produce a silver pistol. She has no intention, however, of offering to him. Do resheathe your weapon. There's a good young gentleman, mistress of a diverting repertoire of conjuring tricks with playing cards, dice, coins, herbs, liquids and flasks, gentlemen's watches, handkerchiefs, weapons, beetles and bugs, and short excursions up the chain of being therefrom to pigeons on occasion and squirrels. She is brought to the mud courtyards of trans-Susquehannian inns, country folk from miles about to gather in a crepuscular, crepuscular murmur, no fabled telegraph so swift as this diffusion among them of word that a magician is in the neighborhood. In this autumn cold, out in the rain, beneath the generally unseen rising of the Pleiades, has she been trooping on, cheerfully rendering subjunctive, or contrary to fact, familiar laws of nature and common sense. I love, absolutely love that, that paragraph. Yeah, that is an excellent paragraph. Especially, I mean, like, you, you go from an excellent paragraph like that, which is excellent for one reason, to the entire, like, Next few pages. pages, which are all excellent, but yep. for completely different reasons. As yeah. a, as a French yep. chef screams about sandwich, uh, being being <laughs> an affront to his entire existence. <laughs> yeah. So let's let's talk about the sandwich argument because there's a lot that happens in in a couple of pages here. So first, I the I loved the Armand leg. Mm-hmm. Uh, name arm and a leg is, is uh, the puns just don't stop and i absolutely am here for it um but yeah just this 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 whole thing where it shifts from a, this argument like the, a screaming match about a sandwich that produces knives um either, whether or not it's a proper food and then goes into the there's a ton of history that's taken into a couple of paragraphs um and then that bleeds into a conversation about the sandwich being essentially the new Eucharist all in, in two pages. And it's so well done. And it, it, it's just one of those, I went back and reread it immediately after I read it the first time, just because it was so enjoyable. Yeah. And, and before we get deep into the conversation on this, I, I, I do just want to read off the first paragraph of it because it, it was mm-hmm. one of those moments that made me audibly laugh. Um, Mm-hmm. His pleasure at being able to utter a recently minted word, which is a great opening sentence for this section. Someone taking pleasure yep. at being able to, to utter a new word is at once much curtailed by the volatile chef de cuisine, Armand Allegra, who rushes from the kitchen screaming, Sandwicha, Sandwicha, gesticulating as well, to the sacrament of the eating. It is ever the grand insult. <laughs> like, it, oh man, it's so absurd and over the top. Uh, and really out of left field that it was one of those moments that made me made me audibly laugh and that I had to go back and, and mm-hmm. go over it one more time. And what, what I love is that following it immediately is just this guy 
dim down who is just as far as we're aware at this point in time just a guy hanging out in a bar starting fights jumps to defend this mm-hmm. random british lord as though he's his <laughs> father or something <laughs> like it's a it's a personal attack on how him. <laughs> dare you insult the man who gave us the sandwich <laughs> which almost might not even have anything to do with the sandwich it might just have to do with the fact that he was french given the, the general yeah. opinion of, of British and French people towards one another at the time. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but so, yeah, and then within, so in the two paragraphs that start with uh, stop it, admonishes the Reverend, both of you, not all the sensibilities here uh, are grown as coarse and as your own. Um, so uh, there's, they talk about Lord Sandwich, who obviously invented the, uh, the food that is causing the debate, which I knew there was some, I, I, I went on a, deep dive on this. I don't know why this was just fascinating to me. I knew there was some um, kind of debate as to the actual origin of the sandwich. I think from what I've gathered, the general consensus, the story that I was always kind of familiar with was that it, it came about when he was playing cards and needed something to that he could eat with one hand and hold his cards in the other one. Um, apparently the more accurate and, and general consensus among historians, and, and I would uh, Brett, correct me if I'm wrong here, um, is that he, it was actually uh, more likely he was eating at his desk and he, he needed something you know, that he could continue to write um, while, while he was able to eat at the same time. But then at the same time, this, the, the mention of Jeremy Twitcher, uh, he was a character in the Beggar's Opera, which was, that's a throwback to earlier in the book. Um, but the character, his character in that uh, is analogous to uh, Lord Sandwich's, the, there's a arc with Lord Sandwich, or the, I'm sorry, the Jeremy Twitcher character in the play um, that's analogous to Lord Sandwich's prosecution of John Wilkes, who was an English radical and journalist and politician who um, apparently played a bunch of pranks on Lord Sandwich and was trying to essentially ruin his career. Wilkes was fighting for the right for voters to choose parliamentary, parliamentary representatives. And so it was a big, excuse me. Um, they basically were constantly back and forth with each other and and wilkes was constantly trying to just screw with him in public places and and just kind of like humiliate him and then you have mention of of george the third and jack butte was apparently the british prime minister under george the third so all in in essentially like seven or eight sentences there is an insane amount of history yeah an insane amount of history that is directly tied to the way that these chapters end with all the talk of no taxation without representation and what ends up leading the American Revolution to go forward. Um, yeah, which which is another just, it perfectly sort of creates a somewhat circular structure to these five chapters, which makes it function even better as this idea of a bottle episode, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Oh, and then after all of that, we have this discussion about the sandwich basically being the new mm-hmm. Eucharist, which is... An absurd idea, but when like the way it's written is so well done, it's convincing <laughs> at the same time. Yeah, you've you've got to, it. It brings to mind just kind of the whole trope of the whether you want to call them the town fool or like the the, the whatever whatever mildly insulting or over reverent names might uh, be given to a character like the squire Halligast. Uh, it makes you wonder how much of uh, you know, these prophetic people was just kind of rephrasing very straightforward ideas, which in this case is, you know, putting meat between bread 
as though it's somehow a profound um, analogy to transubstantiation. How much? Mm-hmm. How much of that is just phrasing things real prettily? Uh, unless anybody has anything else they want to talk about in in that chapter, um, I think it's time we we mention the duck oh, well, in the room. You know, I I'm sorry to delay that, but I do I I just find. No, no. The the kind of the meat cute between Frau Redzinger and are, are truly adorable. Mm-hmm. Whether it's her, it is yeah. Her jumping from like being truly offended, she thinks it's the devil cooking, not literally, but you know she thinks it might as well be the devil working yeah, yeah. in the kitchen. To immediately, it's like, so good, yeah. She takes it and it's like, oh my god, tell, teach me your ways. <laughs> it's, it's, it's really a rolling pin joke. Oh yeah. Yeah. his um yeah and his his iliad of inconvenience i think is <laughs> kind of the the perfect <laughs> summary of the next chapter so the duck um this is i remember the first time i read this this was the uh the one chapter that i, I went back and and reread in its entirety there were parts along the way the first time that i went back and would read reread like a page or a paragraph some this was the one like chapter 37 i would i went back to uh, and i did it again with this one because it is it's so much it's it just um so i i, I want to kind of just address i guess at, at the start of this just the general absurdity of the whole thing because it, it there is i did look into jacques Vaud, uh, jacques de valkinson who's a fascinating fascinating uh, historical figure um so he he did build a lot of uh, automata and he did actually build the the duck um that is mentioned it was more of a um i don't want to call it a, a trick but it was essentially like you know it was it could take food into its mouth part uh, and then it would essentially activate another part of it inside that would excrete uh, a pre-placed uh, pellet that was in there. So it was, you know, essentially mimicking the behavior of it in, in a really clever way. But uh, Valkinson also, uh, I found out, was the first person to build an automatic loom and an all-metal lathe, which had a huge impact on the Industrial Revolution. Um, so he, he, the things he built, it, it was absolutely mind-blowing especially considering the time in which they were done um you i I think we always tend to kind of forget you know that a lot of these these things that we have the the machinery that we have now the technology we have now um is still new and and if we go back even just you know this 300 400 years back to around this time like the amazing technological leaps that were being made at that time with the with what they had to work with it's insane. So wait, you're you're saying that his his duck couldn't break the sound barrier. Just need to It could not, that. unfortunately. Did not uh did not have any kind of aggression towards any particular ship. Fly through walls. Um it didn't didn't talk, didn't fly through walls, it could not turn invisible <laughs> as a result of its vibration. Well, well which, that's a shame. So he was on the right path. I was trusting tension there. If he was here now. Why does he have to lie to us? <laughs> I, you know, I, I, I thought this was nonfiction. I'm disappointed. I mean, it was definitely written at the time. Uh, yeah, I know. I, I figured he was there. Like he knew mm-hmm. all these people. Um, so something that, that did pop into my mind, and I wanted to kind of get y'all's take on this. 
there's a, a specific paragraph. It's on page 372. It's the last paragraph on the page in, in my edition. Um, and it got me thinking if, if the duck is, at least in this particular mention, this particular paragraph, is kind of an allusion to gravity's rainbow as a whole. So the paragraph is, uh, some, the Frenchman bristles, might point rather to a a comment of ingenuity, unprecedented, toward making all authentic. Perhaps, it could be argued by minds more scientific, towards this very attention to detail, whose fineness, passing some critical value, enabled enabled in the duck that strange metamorphosis, which has sent it out the gates of uh, of the inanimate and off upon its present journey into the given world. Um, I don't know what it was that made me, I kind of clicked this in my brain of that, being kind of a reference to Gravity's Rainbow as a as a book that was so technically detailed and, and well written, there were people who basically were saying that it was a it was past critical value and that it was you know this and that and the other and they hated it for that reason or they loved it for that reason. But it, it, as a result of that um, of those analyses and and the the view of it as being what it was, it kind of became this this thing upon. Or this thing unto itself that that you know maybe it wasn't intended to be, but it certainly became that. Yeah, I can see. I can see the the way you're describing it reminds me of the conversation about the barn and white noise, where he's telling uh, Jack Gladney that nobody can see the barn anymore because it's been photographed and talked about too many times. Um, a similar phenomenon definitely took place with Gravity's Rainbow that I would say for the reasons you're talking about. I don't know if I. I can't say that I, I I clocked that as being a reference to Gravity's Rainbow, but more so a, a concept of machine evolution. Um, yeah, yeah. But I I mean I can I can definitely see the case that you're making for sure. Yeah, I I you know I I didn't register that paragraph, but I see what you're saying. In general, though, I do see the duck as uh, maybe not a metaphor for the V bucket, but is used in in very similar ways throughout the rest of this book and i i I think that a lot of what the the themes that he tried to attach to the v2 rocket and attached to v in v are also attached to the duck here and i find it it, uh, endlessly fascinating to sit and try to unravel the layers of uh association between the these three symbols that, that Pinchon uses and refers to throughout all of his work. Yeah, no, I definitely, I, I think it's definitely getting at, you know, the, the idea of um, runaway technology or, or self-learning technology and how it can, you know, exponentially grow from what it starts as to something completely mm-hmm. different. Um, so I'm sure that's more of what he was getting at, the, the Gravity's Rainbow thing, I just kind of clicked into my brain at some point. No, I, th- I, I wasn't trying to deny that at all. I think that... No, think no, that yeah. Your, the, the catching of the passing some critical value is key. I think you're, I think you're right. That is... To, I, I, I think you've convinced me. I think he is talking about Gravity's Rainbow there. <laughs> but yeah, so I'm, I'm glad y'all mentioned the, the technology part of that too, because that, that is something I wanted to touch on. And, because I, you know, and Will, you put it perfectly, that that is a, a common... Um, theme of his in in especially those three yeah. works um that that you know is very much present in in these couple of pages and here. and one could say that you could apply a phrase like machine learning to what is going mm-hmm. on with the duck as it's as it's evolving which to be thinking about things like that in 97 
and however many yeah. years it took him to write this book prior to it being published in 97 is another example of of Pinchon being a very prescient writer as far as the things that he found concerning or at least worthy of mentioning. Yeah, which I mean, I think all that goes back to his time at Boeing and, and yeah. the, the access he had, he would have had to the technology that was being worked on at yeah. that time. Absolutely. One thing, one thing I found interesting about this chapter is its relation to uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, um, mm-hmm. which I think the Pynchon Wiki points out. I had yeah, because I mean, the, the duck is uh, an artificial creation that that wants yeah. a, a romantic partner, um, which I, I'm it's been a, a long time since I've read Frankenstein, but I'm pretty sure that's what kind of starts the plot is uh, or kind of makes the drives the plot in Frankenstein is, is the monster wanting a, a romantic partner. Or just generally wanting companionship um, and to be accepted by society, which is is similar to the to the duck. Um, I don't know. I've I, I really like thinking of Pynchon in terms of his relation to genre literature. Um, there has been kind of a. I know that there's been some speculation that if Gravity's Rainbow, because Gravity's Rainbow was nominated for a, a Nebula award, and I want to say it was like a top five finish, and it was one of the finalists. And there has been some people that have posited that if it had won the Nebula award, that uh, sci-fi and speculative fiction in general would be a different kind of genre today. Um, which I'm not necessarily sure how uh, how much that really matters in the grand scheme of things especially given because pension was a it was a big influence on william gibson um mm-hmm. and gibson you know is very is very influential and is still a, a pretty big uh feature a pretty big like he has, he has a lot of stature in the speculative fiction community um so pension has been um influential in genre literature but yeah I, I just i just and like i've i think i've mentioned this in a past episode but i've been kind of doing a, a deep dive into the history of sci-fi and I'm sure um, pretty much any of our reader or listeners that are interested in genre literature probably know this, but you know, like people like to uh, like to like to link. I just like to say that Frankenstein kind of started off um, the the genre of of, of speculative fiction, um, like that it's the first kind of sci-fi or fan or not the first fantasy, but the first like sci-fi story. Mm-hmm. Um, that the duck looking for a romantic partner is is definitely a reference to Frankenstein. Yeah, well, I'm I'm glad you brought up the the genre fiction um, or genre literature mentioned because I think that is something that tends to I don't want to say it's overlooked in in Pinchon's work, but I think it's definitely not talked about as much as it probably should be. Um, because yeah, I think you can see his his. Um, admiration for a lot of that spread throughout it, especially against the day, which is, if nothing else, a genre spanning uh, amalgam of like at least four different uh, genre literature kind of areas. You know, it's a it's a western, it's a an adventure story, it's a revenge story. It's all these different little um, genres blended into this huge uh, volume. So, you know, for people to forget about that or to dismiss it, I think is is kind of you know, getting or or missing part of what makes him such a special writer. Yeah, and, and pretty much all of his books have at least one or two aspects or subplots that uh if they were made into a full book, um would make the would make the book uh speculative fiction. Uh it's especially true of Gravity's Rainbow in my opinion. I mean the the white the all the parts with the white visitation 
uh, the fact that it's kind of alternate history in mm-hmm. some ways. And yeah, and, and I guess the day has the second yeah. character, I think, like Lou or something. I can't. Yeah. Lou Bass Knight. Yeah. I love it. It's like one of my favorite characters in that book. Yeah. I'll, yeah and even I'll, the Chums of Chance are kind of genre ish. Definitely. Uh, all, almost all of his books are on a plot level, uh, you know, noirs in some sense. And if, and on a, mm-hmm. on a prosaic level, almost always uh, he, he's playing with, with the conventions of tropes, whether it's Gravity's Rainbow with, with yeah. these long sections where he is describing real science or mo- slightly modified science with the, the conventions of sci-fi or against the day where he's describing real investigations into the world with the tropes of horror fiction or he's or this book where he's kind of dancing between you know travelogue and historical fiction and just straightforward um pastiche i guess yeah well and against the day i think does what um does with math what gravity's rainbow was doing with science like you mentioned yeah it, it's a, it's a thing that he he takes very seriously the idea that genre fiction is not something that's worse than literary fiction, at least not in terms of what its capacity holds. I mean, Warlock is one of his favorite books, from what I understand. Mm-hmm. It's a good yeah. book too. I think I've also heard he loves like Little Big. There, there, you know. And I, I mentioned this before, I think, but he also, I think it's, I think whenever he was applying for a grant in the early 60s, he uh, wrote about his love for Ray Bradbury, too. Mm-hmm. I know he was, yeah, I mean, Oakley Hall also had, um, was it Oakley Hall that wrote So Many Doors? I can't remember if it was him, but I know So Many Doors was like a big influence on V. Um, that was a cool book, uh, too. Yeah, that is Oakley Hall. So, but yeah, so getting, getting back to, uh, the duck itself, um, this was, um, I, I was in tears at parts of this, uh, chapter specifically, I want to, I do want to read one part that just absolutely destroyed me when I was reading it and still does when I go through it again. Um, it is on page 374. Um, I think it, no, I'm sorry, 375. Um, so it's, it's right when he's, uh, when the, the chef is talking about the, uh, when the, the scientist approaches him and is, is threatening him. And so it starts with, uh, I was saved, if that is the word, by a loud, terrifying hum outside. The detective, with a frightened cry, ran swiftly and irrevocably from the room, leaving me in great anxiety, as reluctant to follow and continue in his armed company as to stay and face an arrival, perhaps even more perilous. I stepped out on the terrace to look. The noise was circling overhead as if its source, surely the duck, were contemplating a course of action. And there, there it was, my future nemesis. Ah, as I watched it, it began its long glissade, directly toward me, the stoop of an unreasonably small and slow predator. With plenty of time to escape, quite unlike ordinary prey myself, I remained staring, whilst in, defi- in defiance of Newton the metallic marvel floated gently down, till it lit near me, upon one of the railings of the terrace, with barely a sound. It faced me. Its ominous beak cranked open. It quacked. Its eye holding. <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't even get through it. Its eye holding a certain gleam and began to speak in a curious accent, inflicted heavily with lingobeckle fricatives, issuing in a fine <laughs> mist of some digestive liquid upon, upon pure faith in whose harmlessness I was obliged to proceed. 
That was Spray the Duck, the terrible bluebeard of the kitchen whose celebrity is purchased with the lives of my race. Not so brave now, eh? Thousands in France slay, cook, and eat ducks every day. Why single me out? What is what more natural enemy for the most celebrated duck in France than the most celebrated chef? Hadn't uh, Monsieur Duty made nearly the same remark about the, the two dossiers? Had the duck gained access to these? How? I am not your enemy, I protested. I may even be your friend. At least until you contrive to make a dish of me, eh? Be advised, I am provided with extensive alarms that not a feather be molested, but twill trigger consequences disagreeable. Would you like to try it, eh? Go ahead. The breeze from your moving hand will be enough. <laughs> I <laughs> could barely even get through reading that because it's so damn funny. Okay, but you also missed the great reply where he says, be assured of the total safety when yeah. I am present of every excellent feather. Surprised to hear a strange flirtatiousness in my voice. Yours, may I say, being most uncommonly. <laughs> the the aside where he breaks his own dialogue to say, and I was surprised to hear that I was flirting. Is is incredible, yeah. especially when you when everything prior to that has set this up to be the weirdest fucking thing to experience, where this duck flies down and oh is spraying liquid at you that it seems to be spit, but how? And yeah, it's it's so funny that that's his his response. It's, if if you. It's one of those things where comedy works so well as uh -huh. drama, because if you take that as, as reading dramatically, it's so absurd right. and just so goddamn funny. Yeah. The, the, the whole mode of the introduction to the duck, to me, the, it's, it's exactly like an H.G. Wells like introduction scene. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's like you're expecting some like Morlock to come out or something. And no, it's just a, it's a metal duck that sounds like Daffy Duck that this shit is like kind of into a little uncomfortably so it's, yeah it's amazing and I, I, I love the detail that its mouth cranks open which immediately brings yeah. to mind this is not a smoothly operating like, like speech no. pattern this isn't like it, it's a reference to daffy duck but it is not talking as nicely as daffy duck it's its mouth moves slowly it's... and it's loud and <laughs> It's an animatronic from fucking Peter yeah. Piper Pizza. It's just like struggling to work while it's like trying to be oh, menacing. I do God. have to say I'm disappointed, Cody, in, in both you and in the, the, the professional audiobook. Neither of you tried to put on a lisp while doing a French accent. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm just so disappointed. That's going to come off. I would like to keep doing this podcast and not offend all mm -hmm. of France or the entire French-speaking population. <laughs> I don't know. I think once you add the Daffy into things. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I was bold enough to try a French accent when I read out that line earlier, but I can't add a Daffy Duck as lisp to that. Yeah, no, it's hard. <laughs> yeah, I can't do yeah. it. <laughs> well, and then even, and I totally forgot about it, even right before then, um, on page 374, it reads as, as though it's the, uh, the killer rabbit from Monty Python and the Holy Grail. Where it says, uh, ah, it might seek you out, mightn't it? And in the monomania of its assault, grow careless enough to allow my agents at last to apprehend it. That would be the plan, anyhow. Agreed, you must consider how best to defend yourself. Wear clothing it cannot bite through, leather, or what's even more secure, chainmail. Its beak being of the finest Swedish steel. Did I mention that? Yes, quite able. When the duck, uh, in its homicidal fury, is flying at high speed to penetrate all known fortification, solid walls being as paper to this juggernaut, one may cower within, but one cannot avoid le bec de, mo de la mort. The beak of death. I mean, that's the killer rabbit. It's the nasty, pointy mm -hmm. teeth. 
you know, I'm just imagining John Cleese as, as Tim, you know, with his, you know, trying to exaggerate how dangerous this thing is. I, yeah, and, like, we were talking last week about who would be good at, or we've talked a couple times rather about who would be good to, like, adapt this book. And I... I don't think he'd be able to do the entire movie, but I would love to see how Edgar Wright would direct this scene where it yeah, goes yeah, from somebody yeah. like you're talking about giving this over exaggerated, like description of how deadly this thing is to the end of the conversation to the duck flying down, looking admittedly, probably like a nightmare, you know, with its mechanical beak and it, it just being metal that it moving poorly to then when it opens its mouth, that's the voice that comes out of it. Like the layers of jokes that I feel like someone who excels at visual comedy the way Edgar Wright does could do such a good job with this particular scene. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's I hadn't even thought about that, but I've and I've been rewatching Space lately, so I, that should have crossed mm. my mind. But that, yeah, he'd be great at that scene. So is the is the Hervé Dutte is he um a, like an Hercule Poirot? reference that was what i picked up detective. yeah that was what i the gentleman detective yeah. was like very peculiar looking yeah and i've never read any agatha christie's i've read her stuff but i've not read the poirot uh poirot novels okay. at all um so it, it could the other thing i thought of was uh and made probably because of my lack of familiarity with those books was the um the dashiell hammett thin man mm. series it's a good one Jesus, I'm tearing up from that. So what what do mm-hmm. what do y'all make of the the discussion of and it's it's you know it's it's a little bit um it's a little bit couched as you could interpret it as the pre-modern stuffiness about talking about sexuality as as a thing at all for any animal. Um but the, it could also be read as like a literal sense of love having awoken the duck is it is it just essentially a pun on freudian libido or is it a a a spiritual kind of thing where love love the capacity for love has awoken this duck into being able to fly at supersonic speeds and (laughs) eventually bring forth modernity i took it as a freudian joke that was that was what i took it as while i was reading it personally yeah, I'm 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 kind of with you, and and I'm Luke's mention of of Frankenstein has me kind of on that track mm-hmm. at this point. I could I I can see both both sides. I hadn't considered the the latter, but I was uh, I'm with Kate on the the Freudian aspect of it. It was kind of where my mind went. But e- like even even within the concept of the the idea of you know the butterfly effect, it still works here because like you wouldn't assume that by giving the duck the capacity for for love that it would lead to everything else as well like this concept of of one change leading to many it even works within the concept of just this one aspect of the chapter so even from more high-minded ideals of like oh does that mean love gives you the capability of of anything or 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 a joke about freud like he's still doing he's still building on the central premise at, at which this chunk of chapters began with I find I find the uh, I'm gonna say nagging of the duck against Armand for for her her suspicions of him cheating on her mm-hmm. towards the end of this chapter are pretty <laughs> great. Yeah, yeah. Where he almost forget not... that it's a duck for a second. Yeah, yeah. And he yeah. can't. He's not 
he doesn't get it at first. He doesn't understand why why the duck is upset. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to get y'all's opinion on, and this was something that just stuck with me, and I I don't know why I've I've stuck on it, but the mention of the the uh, Galupi opera uh, Margarita y Donaldo. Um, I couldn't. There there is no such play by him, and the first place my mind went was the um, Mikhail Bulgakov novel, uh, The Master and Margarita, which I don't know if any of y'all have read that. It could be a reference to that but i'm not i can't really make that connection the way i i want to in my mind i I looked up translations for don aldo and it it, aldo basically translates to either noble or old or wise so it would be like the noble one the wise one the old one so it in my mind it could be a connection to that it would be kind of a tenuous one and it would definitely be an anachronistic one but i can't Imagine that that name wasn't chosen for a specific reason, but there wasn't anything on the pension subreddit about it. I couldn't find anything anywhere else about it. Well, one thing that strikes me is that if you ignore that Donaldo does not, it's not like a full name. Don is not the person's name. Mm-hmm. Um, it is just Donald. So you got to wonder if it's supposed to be another animated duck, at which point you wonder about who is Margarita, and then it all comes crumbling right. down. Yeah. I don't know. I had nothing on that. I I tried to go somewhere with it, but I just could not get anything out of it. And then, but if, then of course we have the uh, all the bug food that gets talked about right after that. So I I guess there's the whole the 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 thing with you know the margarita pizza was named for Queen Margarita, and pizzas made in this book. I don't. I'm digging. Maybe I don't know. I mean, I don't know. If nothing else, if if y'all if no one's read The Master and Margarita, go read it. It's a great book. Um and I maybe that's what he's alluding to, but it would I don't know. I have no concrete proof of that. So I'm curious if anybody, any listeners or or maybe Brett knows. I don't want to put him under pressure to solve that puzzle, <laughs> but if but if you happen to have already solved it, Brett. If, yes, <laughs> please. I do also, as another joke that is included, love the reaction to seeing Cherry Coke again uh, through through this whole section of just, oh, so are we never going to be rid of him? Like, no hello, no any kind of introduction or whatever. They just stop and then immediately pull the this guy routine for the second time this book, too. (laughs) (laughs) Poor Cherry Coke. Well, and his his response is not to protest. It's not to, like, play nice. It's just to say, yeah, guys, I'm sorry. I got more bad news for you. Right. Like, I know I suck, but I have to be here. That shoulder shrug. "Eh, I know. I know. I can't argue with any of your issues. All right, so let's um, so chapter thirty eight. Um, oh, so I looked into the. Um, this is I don't want to call it a problem, but with with Pinchon's novels, like I always find myself going down a rabbit hole every chapter mm-hmm. with some random historical thing that I look into. The on page three eighty five, it's it's almost an aside mentioning it the the historical beginnings among the arts of the poisoner was a reference to the affair of the poisons, which I had not really ever heard about, but it was really interesting. It was basically this um, very, it ties in well because it has a lot of it was the result of paranoia. Um, It basically started with one, one poisoning the person responsible uh, 
essentially ratted out other people that that they wanted to implicate um, for whatever purposes. Um, so it, basically, this went all the way up to Louis the Fourteenth's inner circle, like to the point where Louis the Fourteenth was afraid that he was going to be poisoned or that someone was actively poisoning him. Um, it resulted in over two hundred people getting arrested, thirty six people being executed. Um, most of the people who confessed to uh, any part of this was it was done as a result of torture, which I also found out that's where I learned about something called the water, uh, the water cure, I think is what it was referred to as. Have you all heard oh, of that? Oh, I did a long time ago, but I can't remember what it was. They forced people to drink yeah. 16 pints of yep. water so that they would essentially uh, overhydrate or their stomach would burst. And then they were beheaded. So, you know, just to add insult to injury. Really, really kind of undermines the purpose of the whole forcing them to chug water thing. Mm-hmm. I, yeah, I know, right? If you're going to just cut their head off, just save yourself the trouble. The water, uh, water was a scarce resource at that time. Clean water was, at least. Well, there's no real concern for that, I guess. <laughs> yeah. So, and then in, in this chapter, we have another really good um, food and religion discussion. Mm-hmm. Um, on pages uh, 385 to 386, where it's, it's, it starts with the Reverend looks on with interest. The Frenchman fascinates him with his recent uh, anima diversions upon the Lord's Supper. He is attending uh, more to food and its preparation. Um, this, I mean, it ties back to the whole, you know, the concept of the sandwich and the Eucharist and all that. Um, but it, it really goes into some really interesting discussions on the significance of, of the Eucharist and of transubstantiation and um, not just in, in relation to Europeans, but also with the uh, mentions, the, the native Americans and how they viewed it. Um, so I want, I really, I wanted to get um, Kate's perspective on that since you have more of that kind of religious background, I think than probably all of us. Yeah, sure. I mean, what, what it's, what it's talking about is this argument between consubstantiation and transubstantiation which is essentially consubstantiation is where the bread and wine of the eucharist are simultaneously both bread and wine literally what you're eating but also jesus's flesh and blood this is like what a lot of uh non-denominational or evangelical churches or modern christian churches believe they don't believe that it is literally um, the blood and, and body of Christ that is just sort of a, a symbolic representation or, or simultaneously they're the same. Uh, and then you have obviously the, the, the classical interpretation amongst Catholics and Eastern Orthodox and these more mainline uh, churches that believe that it is uh, fully Jesus's flesh and blood and that process takes place when it's, it's blessed or, or sort of gone over. Um, I think this is most likely an allusion to you know interreligious conflicts that were going on at the time i don't know if any of it is necessarily meant to be more so than than cherry coke considering these realities and the fact that he was never able to end up on on one side of it or another due to multiple cultural forces which ended up being a reason why he he left the church that's sort of how I come away with a lot of it, a lot of it is that it's sort of character building for him where he couldn't parse out these arguments. He couldn't choose one side or the other. And so that was ended up being a part of the reason why he he stopped being, um, you know, a minister. But the last paragraph at the end of it, I find really good where after he 
has finished sort of his his explanation of the two ideas. He says, But since those days of young hopes, illusory daybreaks, and the uncanny sureness of nerve, I have been down into other quarters of the city and earth, seen and smelled at village markets, hung amid the flies and street dust with some other animal meat, human flesh, offered for sale. In America, some Indians believe that eating the flesh, and particularly drinking the blood, of those one has defeated in battle will transfer the virtues, as theologians might call them, from one's late opponent to oneself. A mystical union between the antagonists, which known I have consulted, is quite able to explain to me. It raises the possibility that savages who appear to be enemies are in fact connected somehow, profoundly as in a covenant of blood, with war for them being thus a species of sacrament. This being so, as a practical matter out of here, the warrior's path must be deemed holy, and transgression of them serious to a degree difficult to imagine in the common British foot's footpath dispute. We must either change our notions of the sacred or come to terms with these nations and sooner rather than later. And the reason why I wanted to read that is because I feel like that whole elucidation of his thought process of there are multiple interpretations for this aspect of my faith that I'm supposed to hold to and that I was a minister for. But there are foundational ideals within that belief that I have amongst all of these other cultures. Uh, you know, the, these these Native Americans here believe this particular thing, which is not unlike a belief that you somehow are taking place in the continued death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. You know, a, a transubstantial belief would be that Jesus is still on the cross, and that's why you can continue to, to partake of his, his body and blood, that we are losing track with from our, you know, regular footline British soldiers, as he's talking about, or you know, these footpath walking astronomers, this idea that they they are not under the impression that there is anything in their day-to-day -day life that is affected by this other than this one moment of the Eucharist. And there's this other culture, this other people group, who has that same belief in a different way, and theirs uses their, militar their militaristic intent, in particular, talking about fighting, as an additional spur on into battle to give them more courage and to make battling a sacred thing if we don't understand their perspective if we don't get the point of what they're doing and how it is passed through and the the inherent union between the two cultures in that we believe something similar then we're going to have no choice in the matter we're, we're either going to be wiped out or we're going to have to wipe them out so i think it's i think that's one layer and i'm and i think another layer below that is getting at this deistic argument of religious syncretism and a belief that there is some sort of potential creator that set all of this up and then walked away but that every people group on that creator's creation has something in union with it um and especially after the ending of the chapters where he he's kind of talking about the machine and that being time and things moving forward i think this is another piece of character building for cherry coke as he kind of deconstructs his own belief system and ends up with this more unified understanding of what can cross bridges between one culture or another. If any of that makes sense, I realize I just talked for a long time. No, I, yeah, absolutely agree. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks. That's a really clear reading of the passage. Well, and, I, and I'm glad you, you know, for lack of a better term, forgive <laughs> me here, folded in the, the layers mm -hmm. idea. Um, because we have, you know, right at the end here, as Will brought up, uh, this, uh, another, again, the food analogies continue on here, but this time it's with, um, the, 
it starts with this, the Damascus steel and how, how it's similar to how pastries are made with the folding of different metals, um, twisting them and, and folding them over and layering them in that way, just like you would with the, with a croissant. Um, but then it goes, you know, even from there, it talks about the, the thin sheets that were used to make, uh, the, the laden piles, which is anachronistically placed here, even though, because obviously those came later in history, but it's still the same concept of this layered, um, use of, of thin metals to create essentially a battery. Uh, and then it goes into talking about how that's also similar to books. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's just, it's such a really well done uh, comparison to all of those. And it just, you know, it's one of those things that you, at least I don't, would never have made that kind of comparison with that if, unless it had been brought to my attention and and I can connect the dots at that point. But, um, to see it not only in, in just the, the Damascus steel and the, and the pastry, but then to make those other connections is just so fascinating and well done. Yeah, absolutely. And I do like the, the random offhand reference to Japanese swordsmiths there too. Just like uh-huh. I've heard yeah. that often the Japanese isles they they do this particular thing, which I could be wrong, but I feel like there would not have been a way for people to know about uh, creating tamahagane steel at that point. Um, I don't think so. That <laughs> I think that read more to me like the old the kung fu. You know, they always have to talk yeah. about their sword and the the history of their sword. Read more like that to Absolutely. me. Absolutely. Yeah, if it were the if it were the reverend saying it, it would you know maybe you were supposed to believe that he actually had heard it. You know, met some Portuguese priest or something. But no, there's no way that this random guy who's obsessed with beavers <laughs> moving rocks has like a secure line on communication with Japan. Yeah. Anybody else have anything they want to add to chapter 38 before we jump into 39? Well, just just the, the, the lamination theme, mm-hmm. motif, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it, because he, he uses it so much and it becomes a, a subject in its own right. Yeah. Um, really yeah. does, in a, in a lot of ways, um, I, I think he's doing a lot of the same thing as... Uh, Sorry to keep bringing up Gravity's Rainbow in this episode, listeners. Um, but the the Kenosha Kids section of Gravity's Rainbow, where it's essentially mm. an exploration of how phrases can be displaced and rearranged just through context. That mm-hmm. that that's kind of what's happening in this last section of they're taking this this metaphor of lamination and they're they're spreading it as thinly as possible despite the fact that they are not using it in the same way. The, the, the printed book suggests the reverend, thin layers of patent, patterned ink alternating with other thin layers of compressed paper stacked often by the hundreds, which in that case, the, the, the strength of the book comes from that culmination, the, the, the layering itself, the security of that layering, the binding. Yeah. And it jumps immediately to, or an unbound heap of broadsides, adds Mr. Dimdown, dispersed one by one and multiplying their effect as they go. And there it's, he's essentially saying, yeah, but it's the, it's the shattering of the croissant that makes it, that makes it powerful. Mm-hmm. It's the, it's the leafs being split apart rather than their combination. And I think it's just a really uh, cool demonstration of of the the intimacy with which he he manipulates these symbols. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean the lamination thing to to build off of a kind of a meta context for for this book itself is still there. 
you have you have layers of story and layers of narration being built within you know other layers of narration and other layers of of story through this entire thing um and and so yeah he he does really like that as a concept and that's a great example of where it shows up in 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 books anterior to this one and i i just uh, the last thing that happens in this chapter is both depew and well, not both, but Depew, Ethelmer, and Tenebrae all just being horribly distraught at the fact that um, the, the Dim Down never unveils his true identity to Mitzi. Yeah. The oh, yeah. <laughs> love story's yeah. ruined. It's just adorable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, and the thing, the thing that I love most about it is that it's clear that Mitzi has no interest in him. It's entirely these, these like you know, yeah. late, late teens, early twenty-year-olds get just getting excited about the idea of romance. Mm-hmm. Because Mitzi's not interested in Dim Down. She's just flirting with him to achieve an end, and you know yeah. they, they're friends. But that's really all it is to her. Oh, but it's so much more to him though. And it's so much more to all the kids in the parlor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, so yeah, chapter 39 also again opens with, um, a great little section, but this one is another great scene just between Mason and Dixon and, and their, uh, you know, again, their, their relationship is, as it's growing, you know, where they're kind of joking with each other, but you can tell Dixon's really genuinely concerned about Mason's well being. He's not eating, you know, his melancholy seems to really be. Uh, affecting him in in such a way and and so mason or excuse me dixon is, is trying to kind of point that out and prod him along and be like hey you know you need to not only just with food but like you need to find someone romantically mm-hmm. and obviously mason's not having any of it but it's it's a really just a, a nice way to open this chapter and and to push their their arc forward a little bit and to develop their relationship a little bit because you know, so far we've we've seen them growing a little bit, but this is uh, really much more insight into how how much they care for each yeah. other, like genuinely care for each other. And it's and it's just yeah. funny too, just talking about Dixon's shifting stomach and how it's <laughs> growing in different ways in different directions. All and, of the different ways that Mason comes up to describe it in like a page and a half, yeah. I find I found really funny. Yeah. Tis prolate still with a long dejected <laughs> Jordio, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's how people talk about bodies is mm-hmm. in terms of orbital mechanics. He's talking about it throwing <laughs> off their measurements and that he might be pregnant. Like it's just yeah. so many great jokes in that scene. But but you're right. It is another example of like this like gentle ribbing that goes on between the two of us. But like the undercurrent of that is very genuine care and concern for one another. Like, you, you can tell that there is a very real earnestness to Dixon's, you know, imploring that Mason find a woman, for lack of a better phrase. Um, and, you know, the kind of half-hearted attempt to wave it off on Mason's part by just trying to deflect to something else is another example of just the time that must have past between these two people as as friends at this point point where he can he can playfully listen along to something that he has probably heard so many times and not get upset Mm -hmm. but instead try and turn kind of the 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 scrutiny the lens of scrutiny so to speak on on his friend instead 
Um, and then I, so I really honestly don't have really anything else on chapter 39. If anybody else has anything that they wanted to bring up, um, 39 and 40, I don't want to say this is where there was less going on. I, 39, obviously there's a little bit of plot wise with them splitting up and everything, but I, with 40, the, the discussions that are had in there, I, I, there's really nothing I can add to them. It's, they're so well done. I, I just had to sit there and enjoy them. But did y'all have anything in, in chapter 39 that you wanted to bring up or go over? I did find it interesting that, and I, I apologize if this has already been brought up, but I did find it interesting. I think it's in 39 that Dixon has become so like inured to slavery and stuff that he, it's, it's stated that he like, he never noticed that he was passing among slaves. Um, <clears throat> Which mm-hmm. is kind of a a different, you know, like, I mean, earlier in the book, uh, especially in in the Cape Town segments, it did seem like the slavery stuff was weighing on Dixon a lot. And then later in the book, it also will seem that way. Um, I definitely, I don't, I haven't really, I haven't had the, I don't, I don't really know what to make of Dixon not noticing that he's among slaves. Um, I don't know if it's kind of an an, a, an aspect of like culture shock wearing off, uh, an, an aspect of him kind of assimilating into Southern culture and just kind of getting used to being in America. Um, I, I kind of struggle with what's the exact purpose of the narrator stating that is in the grander scheme of the novel and how we're supposed to perceive Dixon as a character. Um, I don't know if you all have any ideas on why that was included. Yeah, I feel like a lot of that comes from this concept that even the people who are most staunchly opposed to something, if given enough exposure to it over a long enough time, can sometimes still fall apart. Because I think it's important that it's Dixon that this happens to, for the reasons you already stated, Mm -hmm. Luke, where he's the one who feels more comfortable in people of different cultures, comes from, you know, a a lower class family, you know, did point out the some of the evils of the the slavery that they've already witnessed but the way that i take that that comment being made in the book is that he has now seen so many slaves since they arrived at the shores of america they've just been everywhere and so ingrained in the place that he has been for at least a year if not longer at this point in the narrative that he no longer registers them you know, he, he doesn't he, he just sees them as a part of the landscape or just a part of where he is at. He like and the use of the word slave, I think, is important because it means that he's not seeing them as the people in bondage that they are. Instead, they are just a part of this place that he is in and he's no longer taking notice of them because he's been around it so long now. And for the re- reader who's been yeah. paying attention, that is a significant shift in his personality from where it used to be. Um and you could you could spin that out into a whole idea about why it took so long for America to get rid of slavery, even though at a certain point, you know, we were at a at a at a level where half the country was against it, but it still hadn't been, you know, done away with. So I think it's really a comment on this idea that if if you can become desensitized to anything, even something that is truly horrible. Yeah. That's exactly the word I was gonna use. Is it I think it's a it's a great example of desensitization that you can especially with an atrocity. Um, it, it, it absolutely, I think we see that historically. Um, and, I, and I think going back to what we were talking about in the last episode with that, uh, that cyclical nature of, of history is, I think, in large part often due to that uh, 
being desensitized to a lot of those things that we just get to a point like you know like kate said that you know you see it enough times over over enough time then the impact of it will generally start to kind of fade away but you know as as luke mentioned it does come back like his his initial view on it does you know come back and i think that's accurate as well that you know it, it can take a certain um like a triggering event so to speak that that can cause you to kind of like snap out of that desensitization and, and come back to seeing what it was that you, how you saw it initially. I, yeah, I, I think you're all right. I think it is when it comes to why is this Dixon? Why is this happening to Dixon? But I think a really crucial part of this is A, the chapter it's in, and B, the the full, I mean, it is technically a paragraph that this this line is part of, which I'm just going to read out. In all Virginia, through slate, or though slaves passed before his sight, he saw none. That was not, that was what had not occurred. It was about, it was all about something else, not Calvert's, Jesuits, Penn's, nor Chinese. And this is the section where Dixon has taken a stroll into Calvert, Maryland, looking for, in the same way that uh, in the crying of Lot 49, Oedipa goes walking in San Francisco looking for signs and signifiers. That's what he's doing. He's looking to be approached by Jesuits. He's looking for somebody to indicate they know who he is, to, 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 to pass along a hidden message. This is, it, it's not just that, uh, oh, Dixon, Dixon, even Dixon can be desensitized to slavery, but also that he, he, he has become noseblind to slavery, yes, but also that so is everybody here. Everybody here is looking for conspiracies. Everyone's looking for the king is doing this, the French are doing that, the Indians are doing this, the, the, the Jesuits or Chinese are doing this and that, and the third, and what's really at the core of it all is slavery, that this is the perverse incentive. This is the thing that's moving all of these irrational uh, agents in the economy that this is the thing that nobody's accounting for because they're too busy looking for for the big bad evil when it's themselves it's their own relationship to slavery and to these people that they've that they treat as subhuman that, that yeah yeah that's excellently I, stated moving into our last chapter um as i said i there's really nothing that I can uh, really articulate any better than, than was put on the page here. Um, I, I think that the discussions that are are on here on the in this chapter, excuse me, um, specifically between pages four or four and four or eight in in my edition, are, I mean, they're they're perfect. It, it's a great just back and forth uh, between uh, the characters, and it. It was one of those things where I, I, again, I went back and I read it a couple of times and, and I tried to think of, you know, what I could contribute to this, but I, there's really nothing I can add to what is already written that I think does anything for it. It's just, it's so well done. Yeah, no, and it's also a case of what Pinchon is doing is, is fairly straightforward. Like, you don't, I don't, I don't think you really have to search for for what he's trying to talk about or, or elucidate in this chapter necessarily. It's, it's pretty much, it's pretty much right there on the page and stated pretty plainly as far as what's going on. Um, and I, I, I agree. I, th I think it's an excellent 
discussion that captures the the moods and attitudes of the time, the comparison between slavery and indentured servitude uh, in in mainland England, I think is in, is incredibly well stated. Um, there is the great humor of of Mason pretending to be French. Uh, to be French, yes. almost like yes. yeah, um, <laughs> constantly forgetting that he's supposed to be almost doing like it. he he had to come up with a different persona and was like i've been in this cabin with this french guy for a while i can probably speak like him um yeah yeah, yeah I, I i agree i think it's an excellent chapter um that is 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 really well reasoned and stated in everything it's talking about what i love most about his french accent is just how little effort that even when he remembers to put it on yeah he seems to yeah put into it it's so he, bad he it's bare minimum. Nor am I here to gather the intelligence. <laughs> and I mean, even sometimes it's just one word. Like there's on page four or three, like, hey, you're a Frenchman. You said, we, oui, I meant, of course, I am your man. Then never again does yeah. he speak French. Mm-hmm. It's just that one. I always say it's the <laughs> one word. Yep. I got him. I said, we. Oui. <laughs> now they are convinced. Um. No, there, yeah, there were absolutely some some really funny parts. I I did, you know, and I was going to bring this up when we get to the uh, the funny parts of this, but the um, <laughs> when he runs into um, what is her name, uh, Amelia, and her her little gang, it it had that whole like, well, what do we have here? Kind of bully that was so common throughout <laughs> a lot of like fifties and sixties TV shows. It made me think of um, the the cartoon Doug, like Roger Klotz, that kind of like leather jacket. You know, I'm a tough yeah. guy, kind of thing. It just it read like that. It was so funny, just that that exchange between them. And then you know, he's trying to see what's wrong with her telescope, and like, what's pointed down? Like, what are you doing? You know, this goes up, right? I I, I can't help but be in, entranced a bit by by Mason's confusion. He he can't seem to fathom the whole uncle thing. When it's clear that yeah. it's just like a pet name that she has for her, for her, uh, you know, boyfriend or whatever formality yeah. their relationship is. And it's just amazing how much time on the page is dedicated to Mason sitting there going, what the hell? Her uncle? He's way too young to be her uncle. It's that complete aloofness and obliviousness to what's happening yeah. right in front of him. And then, yeah, and then also I think Luke brought it up earlier about the, you know, the, the Valley Girl yeah. uh, nature of I of feel Amelia. like just for this episode, we should replace our intro music with Valley Girl by Frank Zappa with no explanation. I'll do it. And then oh, just... uh, we, we, that might get yeah, pulled for some reason. I tend to like that Copyright shit. So, uh, yeah. Go listen yeah. to Valley Girl by Frank Zappa. <laughs> Frank Zappa's awesome. But also, like, she's not just a Valley Girl. She's also, like, kind of emo or goth because she's complaining about people giving her crap for wearing black. And yeah, she, for yeah, how she's and dressed. she's just you know I like black. <laughs> it's how exactly. I express myself. I gotta say there were more goth valley girls than you know pop culture remembers. Mm-hmm. That is true. And, well, and then we also we do get a, a brief glimpse um, into Mason. He had you know pretty privileged life. Um, on page four hundred seven, it talks about um, you know how he uh, where he grew up. You know, he was not, he saw a lot of the, the kind of injustice and the, the low paying jobs that were around him, but he had this opportunity to go work for Bradley and, you know, he didn't have to fight in any kind of wars or anything like that. And, you know, he had a pretty decent life. So he's, you know, he, he's aware of, 
how a lot of these people are suffering, but he can't necessarily relate to it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And doesn't even understand the reality of what they're going through. Like not, not even just, yeah, not yeah. even just a, I, I don't understand. I don't, you know, get what that life is like, but also his initial resistance at the slavery comparison. And just, I, yeah, I've mm-hmm. never stopped and thought about this and what the average person, you know, lives like, but now here I am. Well, and uh, aside from the the whole sick crew uh, analogs, the 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 names like um, Captain Volcano remind me a lot of uh, the Symbionese Liberation Army. Mm-hmm. With uh, uh-huh, like yeah, one of them was went by General Field Marshal Sankumtume. Like it, it seemed like in the sixties and seventies, those kind of anarchist revolutionary sects or i guess that's what they count as cells there we go um really did have this fascination with just these bizarre over-the-top names yeah yeah it's kind of a a, i don't want to say it's long gone but you really don't see that anymore and i think i mean penchon uses it repeatedly in a lot of his works those those kind of names Especially when it's you know the the book set in the sixties and seventies, but it's a it's kind of a foregone thing. Yeah, like it was. Um, that's what Stalin was. You know, Joseph Stalin's real name was not Joseph Stalin, and he you know before he before the the Red Army really became a thing, before the the Bolsheviks actually were an organization, he would publish his writing under the name of Kobo, which is like a folk hero, and it's it's a common thing. In, throughout history of people taking these historical and folk names and reusing them mm-hmm. for the sake of their symbolism like uh, for another example in literature like Ender's Game the the siblings do the similar kind of thing with um, enlightenment thinker names writing their blogs I mean I'd say we could go over the funny parts I think honestly we, we've pretty well covered, we've all covered a lot of them <laughs> um, the one that I will point out that we did not cover is the the joke about uh how do you know this is the first time i've tasted beaver um <laughs> oh god yes that, that, <laughs> that one stands out as another as another excellent uh pun in this in this set of chapters yep i forgot about mm-hmm. that honorable mentions just thrown all around at all of the all of the food named it's all hilarious mm-hmm. like um one, one second sorry Insect de tang à l'étouffée. Like, I mean, that's, that's basically a joke <laughs> yep. about crawfish étouffée. Um, and it's hilarious because the idea of in Paris in the 1700s, somebody serving up just a bunch of étouffée insects. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess we can, we can jump into quotes because um, I, I, th- I think we pretty much covered all the the funny stuff in here pretty extensively i know will's gonna go last of course did, did uh luke or kate when y'all want to go first um my quote would actually be from the very end of this section of chapters um in particular the the last couple of i guess paragraphs but it's more more dialogue with a bit of description when mason has fallen off of his horse and begins uh walking back to the to to the place where he's staying um, we have this this allusion to First Corinthians fifteen, which I think is is 
interesting given the fact that this chapter begins with him remembering that it's his wife's sixth anniversary of, of her death. Uh, where it says, Mason Strike overhears of the essence of Pine's uncle lives. He knows that the boy is released from the silence of the meeting into that exuberance which to sober spirits is ever a sign of the infernal, yet did not cause his animal's behavior. What was there too much for the horse to remain in the road that his own sensorium was too coarse or ill-coded to detect? The di not in this house, Thelmer, warns his uncle Wade. Pigs are known to smell the wind, remarks Aunt Euphrenia, busy at the valves and cocks of the coffee urn. Saul, who is also Paul, upon his way to Damascus, adds the reverend. Smit by the glory and voice of the risen Christ is Christ's in the instant. Many of us long to be taken in the same way. Many are. Recovering from his fall, Mason, in fact, spends his waking time reading 1 Corinthians, in particular chapter 15, in which case, Paul's case, or resurrection, proceeds from human bodies to animal bodies and thence to bodies celestial and terrestrial, and the glories proper to each, to verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. Excuse me? Mason loud. So also, I don't see the connection. I never did. Of course not, dear Mowbray. It comes of thinking too much, for there is a point beyond which thought is of little service. It is not Rebecca, not exactly, though it may have been one of those clear little dreams that lead us into the crooked passageways of sleep, though he would insist, as ever to Dixon, that he was not sleeping at the time of the visit. If he does not yet treasure, neither does he cast away these lesser revelations, saving them one by one, some unbidden, some sought and earned, all gathering in a small pile inside the casket of his hopes against an unknown sum intended to purchase his salvation. I just find that to be a really beautiful description of Mason seeing his wife again, because it doesn't at any point explicitly tell you that that's what happened. It is, it is cloaked in these allusions to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, which deals with the resurrection, both of the dead and, and of the living, which has references into the great chain of being, which has already come up at earlier points in this novel. It is cloaked in the conversation between Reverend Cherry Coke and the children in the room that he is talking to, and then further in his conversation to Mason, presumably after Mason gets back from, from the fall that he took. But if you have been paying attention, once again, as I bring up a lot to all of the different things that Pinchon has been doing, and you you take that little bit of extra step to go read that section of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 if you want, or figure out what they're talking about in relation to, to Paul on the road to Damascus. You can see that what actually spooked his horse was the appearance of his wife for the second time in the novel on the day of, you know, her, her anniversary of her, her passing. And that for comfort, Mason is starting to kind of keep these moments that she's shown up like treasure but it's treasure that he doesn't know what to do with and i find that a very interesting concept because at no point has he outright said that you know he's no longer religious there's there's obviously conflict there but that final paragraph showing that he is saving these up for something he doesn't know but hopes is something that will allow him to buy his redemption either from you know some unfounded fear about how he maybe treated Rebecca or his own salvation in the case of, of Paul when, when Jesus appeared to him, I think is just such a, yeah, it's just such an amazing blend 
of these different concepts and ideas inside of man who has been very significantly emotionally broken for the past six years of his life since this event occurred. And just showing that kind of way that grief persists and changes the way that we view anything and makes us second guess things, I think is is really poignant um, and is is not explicit, but is there for people who are who are who are looking and paying attention, which I think is really is is frankly quite beautiful in some of the way that it's constructed. So uh, the quote that I wanted to do, there's a few different ones that occurred to me, but mine uh, to kind of contrast with Kate's is at the very beginning of this section. And I'll just read it out. Uh, In the partial light, the immense log structure seems to tower towards the clouds until no more can be seen, though the clouds at the moment are low, whilst horizontally sprawling away into an arrangement of courtyards and passageways, till likewise lost to the eye. Such complexity, recalling holy land bazaars and zooks, even in the wintry setting. Um, That does, I mean, that's just a really cool visual image of like this massive kind of building that it doesn't really it doesn't prove to be or the the fact that it's massive and and complex uh, isn't doesn't prove to be super belabored in the forthcoming pages. Um, It did kind of remind me like you can't like the whole you can't see the top of the of the building kind of reminded me perhaps of the Tower of Babel story from uh, the the Old Testament and which also just kind of vaguely makes me think of that Ted Chiang story. I think it was his, I think it was Chiang's uh, first published story, which I think won an award about the Tower of Babel. I would highly recommend that one uh, to y'all mm-hmm. and just one. in general to the readers. Um, and then, yeah, I get, I, I maybe brag too much about how much I've traveled on this show, but um, I have been to the Middle East and have been to bazaars and um, I, I believe the correct spelling is souk. Um, I'm not 100% where the Z comes from in that word. Um, and the ones that I've been to are were really uh, touristy and didn't seem particularly um, like, uh, what's the word? Like, uh, um it's not sincere but like uh real like you know like locals don't really wouldn't really shopped in the ones that i've been to which if you've been to places like mexico and stuff you can tell the difference between where the locals shop and where the tourists shop um but i don't know i mean it just it, i just really love that whole that evo- evocation of of the middle east and then kind of the general um you know, it's just a really fun thing to picture, like this vast and massive uh, hotel slash inn slash restaurant just kind of appearing out of out of the winter gloom. Yeah, no, that's a really I, I had that one highlighted as well. That was a really um, just well written passage. Um, and uh, yeah, don't ever feel bad about talking about where you've traveled. I I wish I had I had traveled throughout the world more, um, and I I would like to. It's just at this point very cost prohibitive and harder to do so i mean i'm i'm envious that you've had those experiences for sure so mine this is kind of it's right before where kate's took place uh it's uh towards the end of chapter 40 um it's the reverend uh part of his uh, his day book uh it's the end of page 407 uh going into page 408 in my edition who are they inquires the reverend in his day book that will send violent young troops against their own people their mouths ever keeping up the same weary rattle about freedom, toleration, and the rest, whilst their own land is as occupied as ever it was by Rome. 
These forces look like Englishmen. They were born in England. They speak the language of the people flawlessly. They cheerfully eat jellied eels, joints of mutton, treacle tarts, and all that vile, unwholesome diet which maketh the involuntary, involuntary American more than once bless his exile. Yet their intercourse with the mass of, peop of the people is as cold with suspicion and contempt as that of any foreign invader. Um, it's... I, again, this is one of those parts of that chapter where I just can't really um, add to what Pinchon already put on the page. I, I just think that's, you know, and, and we've talked about this before, and Brett brings it up in his email uh, to us, that there's, you know, again, going back to that cyclical nature of history, like there's so much of this rings true even today. You know, it, this a book written in 1997 about the 1760s and how really in the grand scheme of things how little things have changed at okay. times and in, in, in certain areas sadly like it's really depressing when you really get down to it how how stifled progress gets throughout history like we we get so close to these these points of of breaking through and and making some kind of push towards you know bettering ourselves as a as a species not even just as as you know Americans or what you know, whatever country, like as a species, are you know, we have gotten in our own way so many times, and it's going to come to a head at some point, you know. And so I, I, I feel that anger that that Cherry Coke has, um, and just you know, going back to that kind of stupidity that people have, and that they can't get past their own nature. Well, I believe it's your turn now. It is my turn. Yep. Um. Well. Once again, Luke, you, you get the, the closest thing to the field. <laughs> you did not steal my, my, my quote this week, but uh, that's, that was my second choice. So there you go. <laughs> um, but I'm going to go with one that's a little bit out of, out of character for what I usually pick quote-wise. Uh, on 387, after uh, Mitzi Redzinger is presenting... Uh, dim down with his resharpened sword the goose she is untying her cap and taking it slowly off unbinding and shaking out her hair she is making it ripple for him she is getting it to catch the winter light through the window she is abergasting this macaroni with it that he seems to fall into a contemplative daze before the deep undulations a dreamer at the edge of the sea outdoors the snow pond glide yet again and soon will be night she remembers all the leagues of snow covered terrain between here and the red singer farm all going dark. City she cannot quite believe in that lies ahead. Her father's resurrection and departure, her mother's visible change, and lastly her own, which she can as little command explain. Breasts, hips, fluxes, odd swoons, a sharpening eye for losses of character and young men. The Lord provides, her mother has told her. Wisdom comes to us, even as it appears to leave men. You won't need to go all the way to Philadelphia, nor much further than the town upon market day, so. I just, I, I've I do really appreciate um, the way that not not only is it almost like a, like a like a movie shot um, in in how effectively the her her letting her hair down is described, but also the the intimate kind of idea of her her realizing the 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 slight degree of power she has in one on one personal. 
you know, dis, you know, one-on-one with men. I find it uh, interesting the way that it's written there, and I really appreciate the way that um, it is. Up until it talks exclusively about her perspective, it is a perfect portrait of the male gaze, and then it's immediately kind of flipped around. Uh, so what was everyone's uh, most pinch-on part of these chapters? I will say for me, uh, I, I think unequivocally it was the duck. Yeah, I can't. I feel wrong to pick anything else. Everything else that was going on in here like that just felt mm-hmm. the most pinch. I agree, me. but I do think that the Will's comparison of the of the kind of Motley crew in chapter 40, it is it it is reminiscent now that I think about it more of the whole sick crew and just kind of generally a very pinching thing for a guy like Mason to fall into like, you know, like one of the guys is dressed as a pirate or looks like a pirate. Yeah, <laughs> and they're right. all just kind of like ridiculous characters who have a lot of personality. Yeah. yeah. I, you know, the, the duck is definite that takes the cake, but there's also, um, Virginians young and old are standing to toast the King's confoundment when it's his own turn to Dixon chooses rather to honor what has ever been imported to him. Raising his ale can to the pursuit of happiness. Hey, sir, that is excellent, exclaimed a tall, red-headed youth at the next table. And ain't it oh so true? Yeah. You don't mind if I use the phrase sometime? And he just, it's Jefferson, <laughs> just goes looking for a pencil. Wherever would he use that yeah. phrase, though? No one knows. And I've just deleted a lot of the um, Google Doc. I apologize. Is that what, okay. <laughs> I was no. watching. Control I was watching that happen, and I was so confused. I saw it no. moving. I didn't realize something was actually like happening with it. <laughs> sorry. I think I recovered it. Uh, it looks like it. It looks like. We're, hey, we're at the end of the episode. Yeah, Doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah. Might as well just delete the whole thing. Yep. I mean, what we'll what we'll do when we finish all the books is we'll cycle back and and do it again, and then we'll st- we'll eternal sunshine ourselves. We'll forget that we ever did these. Sounds fun. And then we'll uh, we'll do them again. Keep going forever. <laughs> yeah. Um. So we did have uh. We actually got two emails from Brett. Um. It, basically, the second one was just piggybacking off of the first one. Um. But uh, Kate, if you want to go ahead and read what he yeah, sent absolutely. to us. Uh, email number one. Hey all, another great, thoughtful episode. A few things. I thought the discussion on the Paxton boys was very well done. It's striking that, as Cody said, you can really draw a line from Paxton boys to Proud Boys without much effort. Pinchon's sense of history is deep, and I think his analysis in M&D makes it his most politically prophetic book. My one minor historical addition. Franklin took a rhetorical stand against the Paxton boys' massacre, but... It's worth noting that Franklin suffers a rare political defeat in the October 1764 General Assembly elections in Pennsylvania. He was fighting with the Penn family, like a lot of Pennsylvanians, but he also argued that Pennsylvania should become a royal colony. People did not like that, and pro-Paxton populist sentiment likely played a role in pushing him out of office. It's also super complicated. But a dark take on this episode is that Franklin learns from this defeat and aligns himself more with the populist sentiment in future cases, including by opposing the Stamp Act in 1765. Generally, I think the Paxton stuff is another example of force counterforce dynamics in Pinchon, and a good reminder that revolutionary counterforces can be really terrifyingly sinister, despite their cathartic immunity and gravity's rainbow. 
I've seen critiques of Pinchon that suggest he's too sympathetic to conspiracy theories, but Mason and Dixon seem especially aware of the dark side of populist distrust of elites. Loved Luke, or was it Will's? It was Will's idea. About RC being a remote control eating time. I hadn't considered that. That is a great Pinchon joke. Especially since a character named De La Tube will show up later. I believe the M&D wiki discounts Roman Catholic, but I also think that fits well with what's happening, especially since the watch is referred to at one point as being sequestered inside RC. This same word pops up in Mason's story about the lost 11 days at the George, another case where Catholics are portrayed as somehow stealing or co-opting time. Was the piece of literary criticism that kept coming up Brian Till's sweetness of immorality? That's a great piece about Dixon, Dixon's growing frustration and the limits of resisting the social order. Re Herodotus and Egyptian deities. This was a mystery I found perplexing. I found this passage in Herodotus during the course of my research. It's from Project Gutenberg. Quote, Those of Egyptian narrations which I heard with regard to the gods, I am not earnest to relate in full, but I shall name them only because I consider that all men are equally ignorant of these matters, and whatever things of them I may record, I shall record only because I am compelled by the course of the story. I took that to be part of what's being referenced in that Egyptian deity line. The discussion is about how much a historian should reveal, so I thought that fit. Thoth isn't mentioned in that Herodotus source, though, so it's likely important too, especially since Thoth shows up in Plato's Phaedrus as a commentary on what happens when people move from an oral to a written culture. Namely, according to Plato, writing becomes a drug of forgetfulness. He includes a link to the Herodotus piece, which we will leave in our show notes. That's all I got. Great job again. Looking forward to the next episode. As always, I share your fondness for the Magus as well. Email two. Sorry. Neglected to include two other very small notes if they're helpful, both in regards to the Paxton Boys sections of the novel. First, a brief gloss on the name Jabez. 342.18. Jabez, biblically. Jabez was an ancestor of the kings of Judah, a group that includes King David, and conquered new territory in God's name. Given that Manifest Destiny was also about conquering new territory in God's name, and that Jabez is later shown propelling Mason and Dixon forward, the illusion is ominous. Second, even that lighter aside about stogies connects to the massacre. Stogies are so named because the drivers of Conestoga wagons smoked them. In that passage, there's a line about packing the tobacco like rifling inside of a barrel. So here you've got a reference to firearms, wagon drivers, and the detail that the murdered natives were of the Conestoga tribe. Even when making a joke, Pinchon always is looking for ways to introduce elements of gravity, just as every moment of gravity often quickly moves to humor. Thank you for that, Brett. Um, as always, this is one of my favorite parts of the show, is, is getting to go over what he's, he's sent over to us, because he just adds so much context to everything we've done yeah, already. So. All right, well, uh, that is it for chapters 36 through 40 next week we will cover chapters 41 through 45 so please uh join us then uh our links to social media are in the show notes uh so send us a message send us a comment whatever uh, we'd just love to hear from y'all uh thank you so much as always for listening we really really do appreciate it and we'll see everyone next week Bye. see ya So I, I finished uh, the Magus, and it was amazing. Um, 
probably the second best book I've read this year. Nice. So wow. it's, yeah, it was, it was phenomenal. Um, I'm struggling to find something to read after it now because <laughs> I still have that kind of like lingering, I guess, hangover from that. I started, um, I don't know if any of y'all are familiar with Martha Wells. She did the Murderbot, Murderbot yeah. Diaries, uh, which I've loved. It's been really good. I started, she did a, a fiction book called Witch King um, that I started, I got like a hundred pages into it and just couldn't, wasn't clicking with me. It's an interesting so. title. Yeah. It is. It's the, I think the problem I was having with it was the world building was done in a kind of weird way. And it felt like, it felt like the middle book of a series uh, okay. where you're kind of, it's, it's, it reads as though you should know a lot of these kind of like references to places and, and concepts that aren't really fleshed out in the, at least in the first hundred pages. So it makes it challenging to kind of keep track of who's what and where and why and all that kind of stuff. Do any of you all have any uh, experience with the Illuminatus trilogy? I that is on my to read list. I've been trying to find a copy. I read it when I was in high school. Okay, yeah, it was a. How, what do you remember about it? Um, I do remember it being very absurd and very entertaining, and it it was a very fun read. Like as far as the humor and everything that was in it. Yeah, that's what I've yeah. heard. I um, I just found yeah. a copy pretty recently, and I had been looking for a while. So, see, I found a copy at Half Price Books not too long ago, but it was in terrible condition, like coffee stains all over it, and it had a weird smell. Ooh. So I just put it back on the shelf. Yeah, I picked up like a. It's all three of the of the original trilogy in in one pretty big uh, trade paperback. Mm-hmm. Is it the one that has like the checkerboard yeah. cover? Um. With like a I dolphin think on it. So, yeah. Yeah, that, that was the edition yeah, I read too. I was kind of surprised because it the, the book doesn't sell for that much on online, but um, considering how much I've been looking for it, I was kind of surprised because it usually means that there there's a big printing, but I just never see the see that book around or any of those books around. Yeah, I've been looking for it for a long time, and that one I found not too long ago is the only time I've stumbled. I, I get the sense that people who buy it don't sell it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the people yeah. like the the thing that it was, it was like super popular in the '80s, and then since then, pretty much everyone who's wanted it has gotten it, and the rest of the world has decided that they have no interest in Robert Anton Wilson. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think what I'm going to end up going into. I read a book last year um, that was really really cool. It was called Mordu. Oh. Um, by Alex Phoebe, Phoebe, I don't know how to pronounce his last name. Um, it had a very Gaiman esque prose to it, but it was a lot darker than what Gaiman does, which is kind of saying a lot because Gaiman can get pretty dark. But it was, um, it's kind of like a gothic horror, mm. but there's a lot of weird surrealist elements to it. And the way it's written is, um, it's not. I'm trying to like it has more of a a horror like straight horror vibe to it at times like it it gets pretty graphic um, but also plays a lot with like um, really vivid imagery and very fantastic imagery Um, and he did a sequel it's part of a trilogy the sequel came out earlier and I've been sitting on my shelf for a while so I think I'm going to go back to that one. That sounds interesting yeah. Yeah that does sound interesting. It was I mean the I picked it up at the library when I the first time I got it because the uh the 
opening line on the the inner flap is God is dead, his corpse hidden in the catacombs beneath Mordu. <laughs> so I was like, all right, yeah. I'm checking this out. This is awesome. Uh, it was a great read. So the, um, a, a book that's kind of, I've heard it's kind of similar to Illuminatus, and I've heard it brought up in discussions alongside the Magus, um, is, uh, you know, the Mumbo Jumbo by Ishmael Reed. That's on my read list, too. Yeah. I've been trying yeah, to find that. Yeah, I read that. it while I was in Mexico. And I was... I mean, it's... I don't know... Like, I, I haven't read any other Ishmael Reed stuff. Um, but it's... His style in that book is incredibly impressive for when it came out. Like, reading it, the closest thing it's it reminds me of is, like, a blog. Hmm. It's got this structure huh. where he, like writes quotes from himself and credits himself or he'll <laughs> like just insert a picture of like an actual piece of journalism or something. It's, it's super way more experimental than I think people give it credit for. And I totally get, um, where in gravity's rainbow Pinchon talks about in the counterforce. Um, if you're not understanding how, these structures can be used to control a movement. Go read Ishmael Reed. I totally get why he chose to broke the, break the fourth wall there. It's, I mean, that's, that's what that book does. That book breaks down exactly how, these, how those kinds of structures can happen, how uh, secret societies may or may not be able to adjust history. And uh, a really funny thing is I saw some person online say that they um they read the crying of lot 49 and they liked it but they thought once they read mumbo jumbo they thought it was ridiculous that anybody reads the crying of lot 49 anymore and i would just like to say that that is nonsensical they're incredibly <laughs> different books and like i i can't imagine reading yeah. the crying of lot 49 and only seeing the like what if history has been tampered with angle yeah, well, and Mumbo Jumbo yeah. is more, and I guess Ishmael Reed as a whole is more of like the Afro surrealist, Afro futurist movement of writing. Yeah. Than, than I would say anything that Pinchon wrote even comes close to. <laughs> yeah, and he does. I mean, it's it's got like a crash course in um like Manichaean, uh, his historical revisionism, and like mm -hmm. esoteric theology in there. It's it's a cool book. It's got a lot going on. And the actual like story is dark and depressing, but also very fun. There's like this thing that I think, I mean, I think uh, a lot of the, the 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 what is it called? Harlem Renaissance writers would have uh, credited to the to African predecessors, and I'm only thinking that that direction because of um, having read uh, the Palm Wine Drinkard couple of years back that there's this this attitude amongst african folktales of like you can talk about death and the macabre and have it be incredibly real and incredibly lucid and incredibly dark but also have the stakes feel light and have things feel like you can just make a joke at any moment and that mm -hmm. that is all over the place in mumbo jumbo and it's really really cool to see that I need to find a copy of it. I, that's the thing is a lot of the books I've been wanting to 
find and read lately. I just, I've struggled to find. Um, I've, I watched a video the other day on, well, the other day, it was like a month ago about uh, ergodic literature. Oh, yeah. Um, and it was really cool because I, I loved House of Leaves. That was like kind of my, my introduction to that style. Uh, and I picked up Hopscotch not too long ago by mm. Julio Cortazar. So th- that's on my shelf too. And I, I've heard really cool things about that. But there was a ton of books in that video that I wanted to read, like Double or Nothing uh, popped the up Ross in there. Shark Texts. They talk about that one. I think I, I want to say yeah. they did. I'd have to, I'll have to find the video and drop it in the, in the Discord. It was really cool. Um, I always go to um, bookshop.org if I'm trying to find a particular book that I can't find in, in stores anywhere. Cause it, it's, I can order the books, get them delivered to me, and then they're actually being sold yeah. by a real bookstore instead of like Amazon. See, I've been using uh, Better World Books, has been my kind of go to. Um, I mean, it's all used for the most part. A lot of them are old library copies, but they also donate to literacy oh, programs. Nice. So. That's nice. But Abe, Abe Books has been pretty good too for stuff that's hard to like, really hard to find. Um, I've been able to get some stuff from there, but I, I just have too much stuff to read <laughs> and not enough time to do. I've got two weeks off, so I plan on reading a lot during yeah. these two weeks. No, I feel so. that I've I've uh, I've decided I'm not buying any books this year unless it's for this podcast. I'm trying. So I'm just reading the stuff I'm that trying. I haven't gotten to. <laughs> I I made a list on my story graph of like all the books on my shelf and I'm like I got to do this. I got to finish these before I buy mm-hmm. other stuff and then it just doesn't happen. I find other <laughs> stuff I want. Of course. All right. Well, um I got to get going. I got to we still got to make dinner for kids and everything. So um unless anything changes, I guess we'll we'll aim for next Sunday. Yeah, okay. almost it. Oh, uh, Kate before you go, I wanted to ask. Yes. Are you, are you a fan of hardcore history? I am a fan of hardcore history. Okay, you kind of entered a little bit of his Herodotus voice while reading that. Oh, well, did I? I yeah, that was. Yeah. <laughs> you, you did take on a different kind of tone for a yeah, second not, there. Yeah. It's not <laughs> the same kind of intonation you do when reading anything else. <laughs> maybe maybe Dan Carlin uh, briefly took over my body for a second. Yeah, he's, he's definitely affected how I read quotes. Yeah, his, his the, there's something in the way that he reads out quotes that's very viscerally satisfying. Yeah. All right. Well, that that's all. <laughs> it's a good catch. <laughs> <laughs>